0: Hey, thanks so much for downloading this episode of The Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week I share stories of ag innovation right here. So I'm glad you're here with us. Special thanks today to three new fantastic members of the FOA community, all former guests of the show. Thanks so much for joining Kyle Morrow, who was on episode 62 with Intent. Nick Horeb with Harvest Prophet, who was on show episode 81. And Connie Bowen from episode 127 about the Yield Lab. Really, really cool to have the three of you as part of this community. You're exactly the type of people that I hope this content resonates with and just gets me excited. I need to also give Nick a special shout out because this career change on my end of moving more into content and communication strategy. I asked Twitter, which ag companies produce the best content out there. And Nick's work at harvest profit was the overwhelming favorite. And I agree it's, it's top notch. So make sure you go check them out over at harvest profit. All right. Fitting that we'd have three former guests to shout out on this episode, because I think today's interview ties a lot of themes together that you've heard in previous episodes. Topics like open source and blockchain and innovative lending models and, and several others. On the show, we have today Bridie Olson, who is the founder of Giara. Giara is a protocol for blockchain applications in agriculture. Longtime listeners will, of course, remember the blockchain series we did two over two years ago now uh, in the early days of sort of the blockchain hype. The hype has since subsided, I'm sure you know, but Bridey actually looks at this as a good thing. And I agree with her. Blockchain applications should be known for their usefulness, not for the fact that they can add blockchain to their name or description. If they're going to work, they have to be useful and stand on their own merits for real customers, right? Well, fresh out of law school, Bridey joined as a founding team member, a young startup at the time called Digital whose founder, Emma Weston, was a part of our blockchain series that I just mentioned. Bridie ended up running the blockchain product work with the company as they scaled quickly to 50 people. In 2019, she spun Jura off of AgriDigital to create a protocol that could be used not just by AgriDigital, but by any developer that wanted to build a blockchain-based application in agriculture. In this episode, we talk about some of the applications being built on Jiara currently, and what types of applications in general blockchain is suited for, or maybe not suited for, and why Brighty is still optimistic about the future of blockchain in agriculture. If this is sounding intimidating because of the blockchain stuff, we do get into some technical material here. However, I think it's actually a pretty good introduction because we talk a lot about use cases and not being an extremely technical guy myself, if I can understand, I'm sure you'll be able to follow along as well. We're gonna dive right in here where Bridie is talking about those early days with AgriDigital.
1: And the business unit that I ended up running at the time was our blockchain pilot Workstream. So that was working with a whole lot of different agribusinesses, financiers, bulk handlers, worked with Rabobank and CBH Group, Australia's largest grains exporter. And we were working at what would blockchain mean? And this was, you know, 2017. So everyone was doing a blockchain pilot then. And it was, yeah, there was some media hype around it. But there was this genuine thought that, oh, yeah, like, let's just do a blockchain pilot, like an IoT pilot. And we were kind of testing it in isolation. And one of the things that we realized really early on was it not wasn't something that was going to work in isolation. It needs to interplay with other technologies. But it does have a pretty different business model to like a SaaS-based platform. And because of that, we started developing it as its own work stream. So Agri-Digital has a really successful application layer. It does a whole lot of things for grains businesses, and they also work in cotton now too, providing real-time finance and a number of other things. And the blockchain protocol, because it's a data layer, it really started to develop as something that was pretty agnostic to whatever supply chain or commodity we were looking at. It also relied on us getting a whole lot of people from different parts of the supply chain to use whatever system they were using and integrate that with the blockchain protocol. So you needed to be kind of open and a fairly non-competitive technology to encourage people to come in and experiment and work together and integrate their systems and share data. So yeah, it it evolved as a pretty different business model. And that's really why we launched Giora, was to take what we'd learned within AgriDigital but then pass it across to a foundation that was it could exen- essentially be much more open in how we use that technology and start setting it up more as digital infrastructure for agriculture, rather than kind of a SaaS platform.
0: All right, what, and what about so maybe we could take the agri digital example because longtime listeners in the show at least will remember that Emma was on the show. Boy, I think it's been a couple of years now, maybe two years ago, but. You know, I know that for what they're doing, some of what they're doing is really helpful to have blockchain. Maybe some of the other applications they have are not. So maybe to help us understand when is blockchain necessary, when it's not necessary, could you give us that example of like, you know, when do they run into a problem where they're like, okay, we actually need this to be on the blockchain versus like, okay, this can just be on a normal sort of web app?
1: Yeah, of course. So I guess AgriDigital's main business is providing commodity management systems for different grains businesses at the moment. So they they provide services for farmers with on-farm storage as well as for site operators or elevators in the US. And some traders also participate. So they'll come in, run all of their contracts, deliveries, payments, storage, uh, and inventory management, all through the agri digital application. And for a lot of those functions, you know, they're they're providing a, a really tight automated service for their users. So it's super user friendly. And a lot of what happens is passing data between different applications, creating, you know, a form or a contract or a warehouse receipt off the back of, you know, minimal contact from the user, because a lot of the information that we capture, we just repurpose in multiple different formats. So that they're providing that entire automation tool. And then they also have a couple of calculators. So like a stack average calculator, or they create some export documents. And a lot of that kind of application functionality doesn't need to be stored against the asset. So there are a lot of algorithms to calculate, you know, the stack average, and we don't need to store that algorithm on the blockchain layer, but maybe the end result, which is the quality metric, is what we want to store against that asset. So a lot of what we do with AgriDigital is working out, okay, you're doing a ton of things in the application. But where is that application generating a value that we think is important enough to store immutably against the asset that's being stored in the in the blockchain? And most of you know, most of what happens day to day, we might not we might not need to store. Like we don't necessarily need to store a warehouse receipt, but we do want to store that asset data against an asset. Or we don't necessarily store, you know, an invoice because they don't want to keep the finance data on chain. They want to keep that off chain. So we don't store that data. So it's a, it's a process of going through, okay, what do we think is really important? Because, you know, once your farmer then goes to sell this asset, what sort of data do they want stored on the blockchain that they can then share with the next user outside of the digital platform? And so, yeah, I, I'm does that make sense? I'm yeah. kind of going into the specifics maybe a little bit too much in some of the no, digital no. features, but and the general concept, yeah, is that a lot of work happens at the application layer, and what we do is work out when there's a valuable data point, and that's where we store it in Jura
0: And why did it make more sense for you to do that separately from AgriDigital instead of just grow that as like a business unit within AgriDigital? Because I know you and Emma, your your partners uh, in, in this new venture as well. So why did it need to be a standalone entity?
1: Yeah, it's a good question, and it was something that we spent a lot of time talking to people within digital about and thinking about, um, as I'm sure you can imagine. And the reason that we wanted to do it is because we really see that this is infrastructure. It's, it's bones. It's quite different to a platform or an application. And because of that, we really wanted to get it in the hands of as many people as possible at really low cost and mm-hmm. see what they could do with it. So it's kind of it's community play in a lot of ways. You know, we moved it into a model where it's a non-equity structure So no one owns the protocol, it's run by our team, but we're really trying to make it as open as possible and encourage people to come in and experiment. You know, ag has been the least digitized industry for years globally, and we really wanted to make sure that agriculture doesn't miss out on the best technology again. And as you know, there's there's commercial benefits to the parties who are then using the Giora platform. So agridigital, runs applications on top of the GRO platform, and because of that, they have access to a whole range of other people within that network and industries and other technologies that they can integrate with. So there's kind of this benefit for AgriDigital in being part of this network and in being you know, an early mover on this technology and in this network. But generally, we wanted to make that available to all of ag at really low cost.
0: Hmm. And what is the business model to build infrastructure and to provide it at a really low cost?
1: networks. So I mean that's that's really what the value of distributed technology is in how you can build out a network. So it's really a volume-based thing. If if we build something useful, if people like it, if they use it, you know, there's some upside for the for the team and the foundation in kind of being able to continue paying us to keep building out new features. But if we're building something that's not too useful, that kind of sits there, doesn't get used well that's probably not a good outcome. So we're really trying to build tools, digital tools that are really useful for ag. So there is adoption. And where there is adoption, there's a, you know, workflows that are executed within the platform and within the protocol layer as well. And when certain workflows are executed, there's a really small deduction that's taken from the payments or the finance that's delivered. And that's how we sustain the the, the protocol. But we have waived all of those fees until um, 2021, so it's been, you know, a two-year period to encourage people to experiment and play in the space. There are certain things that we do not charge for, so we don't charge for data. We think that that's like a, you know, it's a really tricky model when you start either paying people to contribute data or charging for data because you're either encouraging people to span the network with a whole lot of information that might not be useful or you're making, you know, a disincentive for people to actually contribute data which is useful or potentially could be useful if you are if you're charging them to to read and write data. So we've we have like a, a no monetary model around data but where we're making a payment for someone or delivering finance that's where there's a a workflow execution fee.
0: All right, well let's yeah, let's let's get into it a little bit more. So you said you said that, you know, you all are a protocol, which essentially is is a data layer, you know, on blockchain. So for 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 somebody who wants to build a blockchain enabled application, well, let's let's back up. What are some good reasons to want to build a blockchain enabled application in agriculture?
1: I think one of the best reasons is if you're trying to build out a finance application. We've heard a lot of you know, a lot of projects in the blockchain and ag space talk about traceability, and I think that that's really important. Creating a you know data-rich assets is a really important thing to do, but where we want to take this to, and I think where it makes most sense to take these kind of applications towards different financing models. I mean, for a lot of participants in ag at the moment, your only financing options are to go to a bank, to very centralized solution, or in other parts of the world, you know we're sitting here in the US and Australia, but in other parts of the world to look for microfinance solutions. Both of those have pretty hefty interest rates, pretty slow processes, data transfer between, you know, the the two parties is far from ideal. And these sorts of systems provide a much more streamlined way to deliver finance in a more competitive rate in something that we call DeFi, I guess you you would know plenty about that. But looking at decentralized finance solutions So I think that's one of the best applications for farmers and agricultural businesses. And once we can shift to a place where we have enough data being captured, we have these data rich assets that we can finance. That's where we're going to see real value flowing from these kinds of technology into agriculture. But the first step is to get a, a really solid base of digital record keeping systems. And that doesn't necessarily need a blockchain solution to do that. But if we're looking towards finance, if we're looking towards secure payments, then we want to start using this technology now and building up these data rich assets within a distributed protocol or platform. I know people use those words interchangeably sometimes and and building up that data and, and asset structure within the platform so that when we can then finance and make payments, we're already working in the same space with that technology to make it available to us.
0: Hmm. And is there anybody perhaps using your protocol perhaps not but anyone in in agriculture pursuing that decentralized finance model?
1: Yeah, I think that I mean we've got some partners who are really innovative and are doing great things and um, have some awesome vision down the track. But what we're working on now as I mentioned, is that first like asset registry point. So we're supporting a number of finance applications, but the finance at the moment is mostly flowing in the real world, I like to say, in the fiat world. So they kind of step off out of the platform and then there's a a little bit of duplication sometimes to make a payment using kind of traditional banking rails. And that's as we're getting, you know, toward more seamless currency Within blockchain protocols and outside of blockchain protocols, how do we move that more invisibly between the two? That's something we're still working on technically. So at the moment, we have parties on our protocol. Um, We're doing some work with Australian tea tree industry at the moment, and they've built out an entire industry-wide system. That system is a record-keeping tool for all of their farmers, who can then create digital records within the system and have them certified by the Certificate Authority, who's the industry regulator. And that's then providing a really comprehensive way for them to set up this asset record keeping system with certificates attached to it, embedded and you know stored on chain. And then what they're able to do is exchange those assets. So you have a really clear picture of title, of who owns what, moving through the system. Where we're then going to get to as part of this project is having payments. That's the next step. So they'll actually not just be transferring the ownership, like in a legal or kind of a data sense, but they'll also be making the payment through the system. And then finally, the you know the last step in this is then we open up this data set. So we open up these assets to bring in financiers who are then willing to lend off the back of that asset. And that's a model that we work with AgriDigital in the cotton industry, providing asset-backed finance. And that's something that we ran last year through uh, the grains harvest as well. In Australia, it's obviously a pretty small harvest, but we ran that last year financing real-time grain assets using the protocol data layer, but making the finance payments using traditional banking rails.
0: Yeah, and in addition to you know the the less friction in the transactions for the farmer, is the big benefit that basically those financiers are in a position to kind of Compete for their for their business at that point because the data is all sort of aggregated and accessible. Well, can be made accessible to them as needed.
1: Yeah, completely. So they're offering and willing to offer much better rates if we're able to have real time oversight, um, a much better risk profile of both the farmer, but also be able to lend in an asset backed way. So I can actually see a live view of the asset because there's data feeds coming through, and I can understand much better the information that. I need in order to make a risk assessment and to value that asset. And all of those things go a long way towards reducing lending costs. And the, the, I guess the final thing that we can do is we can actually automate a lot of it. So we can have a financier deploy like a financial instrument into the platform or the protocol. And once that's deployed, it can have the parameters already built into that smart contract, which represents the financial instrument, and then automatically distribute finance. Whenever an asset's created in the network that meets those parameters, it can distribute that automatically. And we think that that is really exciting because it Essentially, you know, low people who are not banks might just have pools of money sitting there looking to invest it in something, and it offers a way to invest in agriculture, invest on farm. And we know that, trillion dollars annually additionally needs to make its way to farmers if we're going to meet or to supply chains if we're going to meet our sustainable development goals and that's all Mm -hmm. to go towards transition to organic sustainable farming practices increasing yields for food security and all of that is going to require an enormous amount of investment and so we're going to need to open up these rails to other investment opportunities really soon if we're going to meet those meet those targets.
0: Let's see if I'm tracking a little bit here, because the way I'm understanding this, if I'm a farmer and I want to get a loan right now, I fill out a loan application. I send it to one bank. They probably send someone out. We talk. We go through the process that I find out if I'm going to get a loan. If I say, hey, that didn't work out with that bank. Why don't you just send my data over to this other bank and see if they're, they're interested? They're going to say, no, absolutely not. Go fill out, go through their own process. And mm-hmm. nobody's process is the same. A- and so In part, is that one of the advantages to me is like, I have that data in one place and it can, do I get to still give permission of who gets to see it and uh, own that data myself? And how do I make sure that that doesn't get in the hands of somebody who's gonna use it against me?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll address that point first and then talk to how a farmer might access it. Absolutely, you own your data. And that's one of the benefits of these sorts of technologies is whatever data you contribute, you have full control over. So in terms of having, data control and control over your identity and control over your information and ability to record it once and then securely share it with multiple participants that is absolutely what this technology is good at we have a really robust permissioning system built into geora so what that means is that anyone who has any data point that they've contributed you know it might be i might be tracking from the way bridge simply just the weight that's, that's the only data point. I can essentially toggle that on and off. If I've contributed that data or if I own that data as the original author, then I have full permissions to, let, to have control over who can see that within the system. I could set it for 10 minutes. You could check out the wait for 10 minutes and then I'm going to turn it off again. So that's absolutely really important part of shifting as well the kind of power imbalance sometimes in supply chains and, and giving farmers back you know, the control over their assets and asset information and being able to create a full picture of that data as well is really important. At the moment, we often keep um, information stored separately in, in really distinct silos. So we'll have our transactional data in one place with all our contracts, who we're selling to and our, you know our trade book. And then the second space, you have your financing information, so your loans and everything else. And then the third bank or third space, you then have data around like your actual on farm practices. And we don't keep those together often. And there's a lot of power that can be created by bringing those together into a single data set. And Mm. the financing option, uh, the financing example to your question earlier, is one of the benefits that we can get if we bring that data together. Because at the moment, you know, farmers and banks are both going through really manual processes to reconcile loans weekly or fortnightly by creating Excel spreadsheets, emailing them over, reconciling them working out the the price according to some complex calculation and valuing an asset and then sending back what they're willing to value each asset at. If we can store all of that data together... Not only can we have a really seamless transition of that information, like you said, but it can also happen live. And there's a really distinct shift then in how we finance. It's not off the back of an existing mortgage, but it's actually asset backed because the financier has a good enough view over that asset. And it doesn't have to be annual. It can be seasonal when farmers actually need the money. So there's a there's a few really big shifts that come with having better data passed in real time between
0: participants. Okay, you might have just a- answered my next question, which is, why do we need a protocol for agriculture? You know, if it's just the data layer, why does one need to be industry specific? But you you may have just answered that.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a network benefit from getting the same industry playing in the same space. So. I guess it's it's uh, limited resources to target the onboarding of specific parties who are going to benefit each other a little bit. You know, if we're, if we're to be frank, we're we're still a startup, we're a small team, and we know ag, so that's where we started. And encouraging people from the same industry to come together is going to build the network value faster. You know, if we've yeah. got one participant, you know, in art <laughs> and one participant in grain and and one participant on the other side of the world, maybe in fishing, like that would be great for us. We're really happy to have Mm. more people in the protocol and testing out the different features. But if we can get participants who work in similar spaces, then they're going to generate value for each other quicker, which is a good test of like the network effect and, and the network value. So some of the projects that we work on, we do try and rally together industry bodies to pull together people in the industry and start to test some of these benefits early on. Otherwise, you might be waiting a little while to get the benefits of having something decentralized if you're the only user from your industry operating on top of that platform. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I guess it's, it's mostly we know ag and, and we're hoping to get some network benefits in various agri industries but when we're kind of early days.
0: Great. Yeah, we've already on this year on this podcast had some farmers that are building their own tech. And I, I, I love those stories a lot. And I could see with something like this is if you've gone through the effort to get all of your data onto uh, one protocol, and there isn't another application that does what you want to do, you could, you, the data is already there, you could build your own application on the protocol. I, and I exactly. don't mean to belittle it. I mean, it's still a lot of work, but you could build what you need in a way because my understanding is, you know, this is kind of an an open source type approach.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what we've done is we've made our APIs accessible, so it becomes really easy to build an application and just use those APIs to execute certain workflows in the protocol. So you don't even need to understand Solidity or other blockchain components as a developer, as a technical farmer. All all you need to be able to do is build a you know a web application which, I mean, I tell my team, and I'm not a technical person, like, I need to understand our API. If I can understand and use our API, then we're doing something right. <laughs> and I'm probably, you know, I, I, I do work in this space, so maybe that's uh, maybe that's cheating a little bit, but at least it's getting it closer to a user who's not, you know, a, a highly technical software engineer, which is really the realm of blockchain technologies at the moment. You need to have quite specialized technical expertise to build using them so we're trying to make it really accessible and that's what our API does and we've just actually launched two weeks ago our developer toolkit so it's on our website and people can just go and play around and they can see you know what what does this API do for me how could I build a really small application on it and just get started so yeah exactly as you say if you're then a farmer and you see a need you know I'd love to be capturing you know some photos of my paddocks and uploading them. Well, great. There's a there's a tool for that. You don't need to go and find a specific application to do that for you. You could just you could just build a, a really simple mobile app, take a few photos, mm-hmm. and then we'd run the everything from the API down within the Giora digital toolkit.
0: All right. Uh, I So I asked, we have the, a brand new membership community and we had a couple questions from there. And I, I, one of them I wanted to ask you about, which is how do you view IBM food trust? Are they, are they doing the same thing? Just maybe more focused on the traceability or is it slightly different?
1: Yeah. So I think that IBM food trust, well, IBM has two different work streams. One that's focused on finance and one that's focused on food traceability and they have an awesome team. I really like the IBM team. We spend a bit of time with them. And the Food Trust project, as you say, focused on traceability. They obviously are playing kind of the, at a different tier to us at IBM. You'd be surprised to know that our, our little uh, Sydney-based startup doesn't have the same amount of resources as <laughs> as <laughs> IBM does. And yeah, so we, I mean, there's a lot that we learn from them. We obviously have started by using different technologies, IBM using Hyperledger, and we, we've started and... Mostly played around using Ethereum-based technologies. so there are a few differences technically. But I think achieving that overall objective of getting food traceability, and you know IBM working with systems like Walmart, saying okay, well we're yeah. going to get full traceability into Walmart, that's great. Where we then play is probably with the the smaller parties who don't maybe have the you know the ready digital infrastructure or the cost you know the cost base to be able to work with those larger technical players, and we're kind of a bit more you know, light weight. So we fill a different gap, probably more the tier two, tier threes. And then what we, tra- what we aim to do, and when, you know, when we chat to the IBM team, we're always talking about this, is then to make our systems really integratable. So any data that's flowing through Giora could easily pass into Food Trust. We haven't had the opportunity to test that yet, but that's our you know, theoretical ambitions. So that as a user, it doesn't really matter what's happening kind of on a data layer. You want to be able to serve your business needs. So if you need to send data to Walmart, then you should be able to send data to Walmart if they're using an IBM system. Right. So that's, that's the goal there.
0: Okay, that's neat. And why did you choose Ethereum?
1: Yeah, I think that, well, we're, we're probably one of those not rare blockchain companies but we're we're one of the companies that doesn't have a marriage with any one technology we've definitely played around and had you know a lot of advice from a lot of different technologies the reason that we have gone with Ethereum for this was at the time when we started building out Giora a year ago it definitely looked like it was going to serve our needs the best it had know really great standardization around smart contracts and we thought that's going to be a really useful way for us to accelerate our growth and to tap into DeFi applications early on and and other currency solutions early on. I think the developer community within Ethereum has always been really supportive and a a really great value add for our business. And so for those reasons, and and yet particularly relating to the smart contracts reasons and the flexibility we had with Ethereum, we continued building with Ethereum. But Jiora is essentially designed to be lift and shift and that's the language that we try to use to describe how we can plug and unplug the various different blockchain components under the hood. Mm And I mean, that's the whole benefit of building out something like Giora is that as the user, you don't have to continue making technical decisions. We will do that. So we're really, you know, we closely monitor what's happening and the development of the different technical components and are upgrading the protocol regularly so that we can make sure it's, it's delivering the best solution for our customer. For our customer, it doesn't, you know, they don't have to learn a new smart contracting language, you know, if Ethereum crashes you know, and, and fades away and we shift to something else. We aim for that to be completely seamless and we just yeah, lift and shift to new protocol or protocol components
0: it seems like I, I i heard about smart contracts a lot years ago and i don't hear about them as much anymore have they how is that kind of played out are are, are smart contracts being used regularly in in ag supply chains today
1: yeah i mean well smart contracts when we talk about them in our office it's essentially just a bundle of code so it's, it's, it's really nothing legally enforceable. And we spent a lot of time talking about the difference between smart contracts and legally enforceable smart contracts. And there are some mm. you know, developments happening in the international standard space around the two distinctions and you know, a lot of people talking and writing about the distinction between the two. So when we're talking about smart contracts, we're just talking about a set of instructions. So we use that all the time in the GO protocol. It's how everything works. Because it's how the instructions are sent, and it's how the the assets within the protocol are structured. They're structured around smart contracts. But it's probably, yeah, it's probably a little bit of a misdirection to call it a contract in any sense of the word contract normally, which I think maybe has has caused people to talk about them less. Because when you're kind of the conversation originally around like enforceable smart contracts, I think has become separate to just like the technical way using smart contracts to do X and Y.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to thank Corey Franson then for those, for those questions about sort of the back end on, on the blockchain. That was pretty, that was cool. That The, the new community, it's fun to bring them in and, and have them ask some questions as well. I, I, as you are going to gather here, I like coming up with fictional startups. Let's say I want to start up a company that helps manage produce growers, food safety regulations. And that requires a lot of data and I'm going to help them because every state's differently and they keep getting more and more of these regulations put upon them and it's tough. And so I want to start up this company that helps them manage their food safety regulations. Part of the pushback I'm going to get is they're going to say, look, I'm already putting all this data in my farm management software. And I'll say, oh, good. Well, I want to work with those farm management softwares to, to share data for farmers that want to use my, you know, my food safety management software. What is the incentive that I could say, Hey, let's all just go get on, you know, Giara here. And then they put the data in one place and we could all use it for our purposes and it's better for the farmer. What's the incentive for them to do that? Now I'm sorry, that's such a convoluted question, but you see where I'm getting no,
1: at. No, I think, I think that you're hitting on the, the real question is how do we create incentive models for kind of proprietary software companies to want to share data.
0: Exactly. That's a way better way of asking that question.
1: (laughs) No, no, I mean, I, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about that. So I think it's a real challenge. I think that the pressure needs to come from multiple directions. I think farmers and users requesting something is a very, very big, both carrot and stick for software providers. And as soon as one starts to offer an additional feature, you know, the rest of the software providers are going to need to start off offering that as a feature. So I think that, you know, user demand, pharma demand saying, hey, I want control over my data. Hey, I want to use my data for, you know, providing my streamlined reporting back to the industry body. That's that's something that then they have to think about. And I think, you know, in the export document space, we've definitely seen applications have to grow into providing better export doc integrations and tools because of user-led demand. And so I think that that's, that's a really powerful tool that that farmers have to, to make requests of their software providers. But then also, I guess regulators set up frameworks for people to contribute data back to their, you know, one of, one of the big ones in Australia is we get a lot of reporting back for the purpose of calculating royalties. I don't know it happens slightly differently in the States, but there are are strict formats for how industries, farmers, producers need to report back on overall yield, seeds they used in order to calculate royalties for the seed companies. And because that is something that is industry mandated, they actually have like a reward scheme and a kind of a payment scheme sometimes that comes back with collecting those royalties and, and sending on the data. And that's a good way to create a new business model. So industry can actually play a role in setting up different models around data flows and and uh, royalty payments in this particular case back to them. And that is a way of encouraging software providers because it gives them something that is valuable that they can add as a feature to their software that either industry or, or seed companies might, might pay for. So I guess that, that there's there's kind of that pressure that comes from the pharma asking for new features, but also the regular saying regulators saying, well, this is the information that we need. You're going to need to provide it to us. Both of those have, I guess, have a bit of pressure on the software companies. But one of the things that we can do as, I guess, a protocol is to make the work of software companies much easier. So the more that we can say, hey, that, that tool that you want is actually really accessible through our API, or you know those six weeks of development that you're going to do to build out a new feature, well, here's the feature here within our ecosystem, and you can use it right away. and Don't yeah. worry about engaging a new developer team to build. That is a really big incentive for them to start using these kind of distributed technologies. So we definitely are seeing you know, applications. We, we worked with a group who, in Papua New Guinea, built out a really simple mobile application and the entire back-end. So they had a little interface, but the entire back-end was all built on Giora, and it just cuts their development time down enormously because they're able to use our entire system. And then just because of the the efficiency and the ease and you know, not having to employ so many developers, those users are now using a distributed system where they're able to play with each other. So there's probably like a few different incentives and pushes coming when we try and encourage um, software companies to be more open. But but yeah, the regulatory, the customer push, and then just making their jobs easier, I think Mm -hmm. are the three main things that we focus on.
0: Well, thank you so much to Bridie Olson of Giara for bringing such interesting stories and perspectives on the show. Really do appreciate it. And for you listening, what do you think of this blockchain stuff? Do you see these use cases as important? Do we have a fit here as terms of this technology with real agricultural problems? I think it's definitely interesting to think about a data layer that I can own my data and use it however I want in a very fluid way. And I think if they're successful, that's what we're probably looking at here. But I'd like to hear your perspective. Hit me up on Twitter at Tim Hamrich via email, tim at aggrad.com, or if 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 you're in the community, start a thread in the community and we could talk about it there. I am planning on returning to writing blog post reflections about all of these episodes, and I think it'd be cool to include some of your feedback in those blog posts. So if you're up for that, please let me know what you think. One other thing I'd just like to address before we head out here from this episode is I I don't think I've addressed this directly. So I understand why many of you are asking. I made the decision months ago not to turn this into the How COVID-19 Impacts the Future of Agriculture podcast. For better or worse, that was the decision I made. I know some of you have reached out wondering why I am i seem to be ignoring the biggest thing that has happened in, in our lifetime, probably, and why I'm not refocusing on this new world we live in. It's mainly for three reasons. The first of which is I don't think COVID-19 nullifies any of the content that I'm producing here. I still think it's evergreen content. Number two, there are a lot of people who are producing that content and doing so very effectively. If you want references, let me know, and I can send you to people who are doing interesting work there. And number three is I just tend to avoid breaking news in general on the show. And while COVID-19 will have lasting impacts, most of the stories that I'm seeing are pretty time-bound. And... I just have decided to stay with our sort of normal course of of content. So anyway, I hope that clarifies for those of you who have been asking. I understand why you're asking, but that's sort of the reasons why I decided to, to do what I've done. But more great stuff to come, I promise. The bonus episode last month went really well that I did with Matthew Pryor, so I'm thinking maybe I might throw one of those in every month or so, unless some of you start yelling uncle with way too much content. But thanks so much, as always, for your time and your attention. I really don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation.